Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom of Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Coming up, poet Maya Angelou. Let's give, give it to Sister Maya Angelou, our mother and poet laureate and sister and friend. Give it to her. Thank you, sister. My brothers and sons and grandsons and cousins and nephews, the night has been long. The wound has been deep. The pit has been dark and the walls have been steep. Under a dead blue sky, on a distant beach, I was dragged by my braids just beyond your reach. Your hands were tied, your mouth was bound, you couldn't even call out my name. You were helpless and so was I. But unfortunately, throughout history, you worn a badge of shame. I say the night has been long. The wound has been deep. The pit has been dark. And the walls have been steep. But today, Voices of old spirit sound speak to us in words profound. Across the years, across the centuries, across the oceans, and across the seas, they say, draw near to one another. Save your race. You have been paid for in a distant place. The old ones remind us that slavery's pains has paid for our freedom again and again. The night has been long. The pit has been deep. The night has been dark. And the walls have been steep. The hells we have lived through and lived through still have sharpened our senses and toughened our will. The night has been long. This morning I look through your anguish right down to your soul. I know that with each other, we can make ourselves whole. I look through the posture and past your disguise and see your love for family in your big brown eyes. I say, clap hands and let's come together in this meeting ground. I say, clap hands and let's deal with each other with love. I say, clap hands and let us get from the low road of indifference. Clap hands. Let us come together and reveal our hearts. Let us come together and revive our spirits. Let us come together and cleanse our souls. Clap hands. Let's leave the preening and stop impostering in our own history. Clap hands. Call the spirits back from the ledge. Clap hands. Let us invite joy into our conversation, courtesy, 
into our bedrooms, gentleness into our kitchens, care into our nurseries. The ancestors remind us, despite the history of pain, we are going on people who will rise again, and still we rise. Brothers and let's give, give it to Sister Maya Angelou, our mother and poet laureate and sister and friend. Give it to her. Thank you, sister. Backcountry Black West Africa. The monkeys, the incredible foliage, the green parrots that streak around screaming at you. Just backcountry sight sounds that I'd never had any idea about because just cannot describe Africa unless you've been there. And as we were going along, there was also in my mind a great turmoil. They begin to come in my head as we might have a dream, as when we sleep. A rough, ragged, newsreel type of thing. It was as if all that I had read by now about the ways that Africans had been brought out of Africa seemed to be enacted. I began to see the way that along in the coastal areas, as had been the case with Kunta, mostly they were people who were kidnapped because they were close to the coast. But further back inland, I began to see the way that by far most of the slaves were captured, come screaming awake at night with the thatched roofs of their homes falling in on them a fire a flame the thatch was in flames and they would rush out into the bedlam into the carnage and those who survived it in any kind of fit shape were captured as prisoners linked neck to neck with songs into what were called coffles if you do much reading in this you will run into that word coffles c-o-double-f-l-e-s it is said that some coffles of slaves were as much as a mile in length, and they would begin those tortuous marches from wherever the villages were down toward the areas where the ships were. And when they got down, with many dying along the way for many reasons, and when they got to the shoreline area, the survivors were herded into long, low buildings built of small timbers and thatched roofs called barracoons. In the barracoons, they would be washed they would be fed, almost force-fed. They would be crudely medicated to hurry them toward a fit physical condition. When it was considered that they were in sufficient condition, now a few at a time, they would be moved out into the yards of the barracoons, and there the owners of the ships would come, the captains and the mates, and there would ensue these hideous, physical examinations, every orifice of the human body, and then the purchases, and then the branding, usually between the shoulder blade, usually with the initial of the ship that was going to take them out. And then would come the time, as I pictured it in my mind's eye from things I'd read, that they were being moved from the barracoon across that strip of beach to the little cockleshell canoes at the edge of the water. And when these Africans, from the inland areas, many of whom had never seen the sea. They were terrified. Those who saw the surf march up the beach, to them it was the jaws of some incomprehensible animal. They'd never seen anything like that. A ship lying offshore was to them a floating, flying house or something like that. They didn't even know what a ship was. 
It seemed it was when those Africans were being moved from Barracoon toward the canoes that for the first time they began to perceive the enormity of the unknown that was in store for them because it was on that beach that I had read so many times that so many of them who up to this time had been virtually stoic went into absolute spasms of terror. They would fall prone on the beach. They were groveling. They were screaming. They would use their fingers like claws digging into the sand. They would use their necks and heads like the beaks of giant birds trying to bite up one last hold on the land that was their own. And they were beaten up from that, beaten down across the further beach onto and into those canoes that took them out through the surf, out to the ships. And it was into the holds of those ships that they were put. And that was how the ancestors of every black person in this country without exception were brought here. There were no exceptions. There was no other way. And I was riding along with my head so full of this when we came to a big village up ahead. And I looked up ahead and I was astounded to realize that those people up there knew what had happened behind us in the village of Jufere. Obviously they knew. Obviously someone had come out and the news had relayed ahead of it before I had left. Because ahead of us now, there were poles sticked along the road. There were green liana vines hanging like the cords from microphones, but thicker. And at intervals along these vines hung the great glossy green saboa leaves that Africans or Gambian Jews for sunshades or umbrellas. And the people were thronging out into the road, milling, waving. We could see them as we approached. And they were crying out some cacophony of sound. And we came on the driver slowing down. When he finally got to the people, I guess he was doing then maybe two miles an hour. And we were trying to nudge, he was, through the people who were all jostling and crowding around. I didn't know what to do. Again, I felt this full of helium feeling. I just stood up again like a jack-in-the-box, now in the Land Rover. And I'm looking down at these people, these people who are jet black all around, wizened elders and all ages and sizes and whatnot. And it came to me, looking at them staring up at me as they waved, what a huge caprice it was. There they were looking at me, seeing me as a symbol of all we 25-plus million black people over here, and I, in turn, am using, in effect, our eyes looking at them, seeing people who have never left Africa since the beginning of man, so far as we know. And the huge caprice was that the only reason either of us was in either place was that caprice of which of our forefathers had happened to be taken out of Africa and which had been left there. That was the only reason either of us was in either locale. And I was full of that going on in among those people when I suppose we had gotten about a third of the way through them, and I suddenly began to understand what it was that they all were crying out. I think I hadn't understood it because I didn't understand their tongue, and they were all closely clustered, and I didn't get anything but the wall of sound as opposed to the individual sounds. But it began to come to me now that what they were all crying out from wizened old elders, the men, the old grandmothers with skin like leather, their breasts like old belt straps, 
the childbearing women, many of them pregnant, the maidens, the youth, and the little youngsters, jaybird naked of both sexes, they were all milling, thronging, looking up at me with beaming, bullied expressions on their faces. And what they were crying out, which I had not understood now, until now, was Mr. Kinte, Mr. Kinte. When we got to that village, near it, the little children, playing on the perimeter of the village, gave the alert. And the people came hustling out of the village. It's a very small village, only about 70 people. And as they rushed toward me, I had entered into something that is described as the peak experience. It is that which emotionally one experiences that nothing ever in the rest of your life can transcend. And I feel certain that is what was my experience that morning in that village. When the people came, I saw among them a short man, compactly built, an off-white robe, a pillbox hat. And when they got closer, the interpreters with me, sure enough, went to him. And meanwhile, the 70-odd people of this little village came rushing toward me. They came quickly, curiously around me. They were around me in, in sort of in a horseshoe design. Had I held out my arms at full length, I would have touched the nearest ones on either side. And they were about three, four deep all around. And the first thing that got to me was the intensity of how they were staring at me. The eyes just raked from head to foot. The foreheads were furrowed in the intensity of their staring. And I felt very, very discomforted being stared at as if I was a thing or something. And the first thing that got to me was I began to have now another feeling. It was also in me, and yet it seemed apart. It was visceral, as if my inserts were going to turn around or something. I felt almost nauseous. And I remember standing up there thinking to myself, what in the world is the matter with you? And what came to me was that I had been in crowds lots of times in my life. But for the first time in my life, I was in a crowd, and I was the only one of my complexion, which might be said to be brown. Everybody else I was looking at was jet black. And emotionally, that thing hit me like a thunderbolt. I, to this day, don't know the components of why I felt as I did. And you know, it, it's sort of like body English. If we are insecure, uncertain, whatnot, we tend to drop our glances. And I dropped mine. And without having intended to do so, I found myself looking almost studying my own hands, the color of my hands, inside, outside, and naturally, involuntarily, it's in contrast with their complexion. And this time, it didn't take so much time. I had this rolling wave of feeling come over me. It was just terrible, awful. I felt hybrid. I felt impure among the pure. And it was just awful. I remember standing there being rocked by that when the old man left the interpreters and briskly walked away, at which point all the people around me quickly left me and went to the old man. One of the interpreters, his name was Salah, came up and spoke quickly, whispering sort of in my ear. And what he said rocked me as much as the rest when I understood the import of it. He said, why they stare at you so, they have never in this place seen a black American. And I suddenly realized they were not looking at me as Alex Haley 
writer, individual, as I tend to think of myself, but they were seeing me through their eyes as the symbol of the 25 plus millions of us black people in this country whom they had never seen. And it was just awesome to realize that someone had imputed to you that enormity of symbolism. Well, I was standing there kind of rocked by that when just sort of adjacent were now all these people, 70 out of them, clustered around this old man. And they were darting glances at me, and there was intense conversation in Mandinka. And although I couldn't understand a syllable of it, yet in some way there's a universal language of gestures, nuances, inflections. And somehow I knew exactly what they were talking about. I knew they were trying to arrive at how did they feel collectively about me symbolizing to them all we black people in this country whom they never had seen. And there came a point when the old man turned and quickly as was his way, he walked right through the people. He walked right up to me, stood maybe a yard from me, his eyes piercing into mine, and he spoke in Mandinka as if he felt I instinctively ought to understand it, which of course I couldn't, and the translation came from the side. And once I understood the import of that translation or the words, I made a vow to myself that once I get this book and the film and everything all settled down pretty well, I am going to see these words put in some appropriate permanent location somewhere along the southern coast of this United States and along the western coast of Africa. The way that they decided they felt about me symbolizing to them all we black people in this country whom they never had seen. And the translation was, quote, Yes, we have been told by the forefathers that there are many of us from this place who are in exile in that place called America and in other places. And that was the way they felt about it. Um, again, my name is Michael Cord. I'm an attorney and activist from Philadelphia, and I'm not even close to being the type of great historian that Dr. Leonard Jeffries is, but uh, in my work as a community activist, I've been involved in a lot of projects that require you to become an expert in history as quickly as possible. And as a black man in America who's going through the educational system, I understand how important it is not only to learn your history, but to share your history. Uh, let me just give you some background information about myself. And just briefly, even before that, uh, Dr. Leonard Jeffries will be on to talk about what he's doing and what he's done. But let me just tell you why I refer to him as the great Dr. Leonard Jeffries. I mean, here's a man who graduated way back in the day from Lafayette College, um, predominantly white institution. He graduated with honors from Lafayette. He then went on to Columbia where he got his master's degree, and not long after, he received a Ph.D., and that's why we call him Dr. Leonard Jeffries. He's also the founding chairman of the Black Studies Department at San Jose State College. So based on that little bit I shared with you, you can understand why it's so important that you stay tuned to hear from this man. But he's not just a, a, a scholar or an intellectual or a professor or a historian. He's certainly all of that. But in addition to that, he's also a frontline activist. Far too often we know that there are Afrocentric scholars out there, but they stay in their lofty towers, in their ivy towers, in these major universities, and they write a lot of good stuff, but they don't really do anything. Well, 
Dr. Orlando Jeffries is a much different type of individual. Yes, he has his undergraduate degree, his master's degree, his Ph.D. He's the founding chairman of the Black Studies Department at San Jose State College, but he doesn't stop there. He's always on the front line as an activist, bringing that intellectualism to the people. That's what separates him from other great scholars who are great scholars, but they do nothing else, and other great activists who are great activists, but they do nothing else. But before we get into that, please share with the listening audience a little bit more than what I talked about in terms of your background, because before folks can appreciate what you say, they need to know who you are. So if you could talk for a few minutes, Dr. Jeffries, about your background, filling in some of the gaps I might have missed. Well, certainly I appreciate the chance to uh, be a part of the radio program and talk to your radio family. And uh, it's always a pleasure for me to communicate with my people uh, because my, you know, my personal mission is to try to lift us up uh, globally. And so I don't only, I not only find that New York, New Jersey uh, is my area of work, but the United States is uh, Western Hemisphere, including mm. all of Brazil and and the islands of the Caribbean and uh, Europe, as well as the African continent. I'll be leaving for Africa in two weeks for a continent for a conference, the World Summit of Black Mayors. And wow. The head of the World Summit of Black Mayors is Mayor, um, our our brother uh, in in East Orange, Louis uh, Bowser. Mm. Okay. So. Uh, and our family, uh, he's been, and his family, uh, uh, the Jeffries, have, have known each other for uh, more than half a century. So uh, it, it's it's great to be a part of what I call the great awakening of African peoples. Yes. And that's what this last, since 1945, has been what I call the great awakening, where people have moved together and tried to um, lift themselves up. But I'm most proud that I was born and raised in Newark, New Jersey. And uh, people say, well, you were born and raised in Newark. Certainly was. That's where I got my foundation. Very proud of it. That's where I got my formation. Mm-hmm. It's been very substantial, and it's lasted me. And the beautiful thing was that I was born January 19, 1937, in Newark. My mother gave me my first book, and it wasn't Dick, Jane, and Spot, Little Red Riding Hood, and the Seven Drawers, <laughs> Jack and the Beanstalk. It was Booker T. Washington, Up from slavery. It mm-hmm. was a brown, dark-covered, hard-covered book that I couldn't read, but I could see the pictures of standing black people, et cetera, et cetera. The first book to begin to let me appreciate learning was Booker D. Washington, Up From Slavery. And then my mother, inspired by her father, uh, was my first teacher, my master teacher. You know, she taught us. She graduated from Central High School. My father graduated from Westside High School during the Depression, and that was an achievement for black folks then because most of the children would have to be out there trying to scuffle and work and bring in something for the family. But our families were substantial enough to allow my mother and father to graduate from high school from North New Jersey. So they both appreciated learning. I mean, that's my foundation. I might have done good things with it, and I certainly have, but I attribute it to what happened to me in Newark, New Jersey, with the whole family. 
Those of you who have just tuned in, you heard the voice of Dr. Leonard Jeffries. The voice you hear right now is Attorney Michael Cord. I'm from Philadelphia. I'm an activist and an attorney, and I'm honored to be co-hosting this show. By the way, i got to give a big shout-out to Leslie Gist of On the Gist of Freedom. She's responsible for this blog talk radio show, and she's invited me, Attorney Michael Cord, along with the great Dr. Leonard Jeffries, uh, to talk about that historical issue. You better believe it. There was somebody in Philadelphia called the Reverend Leon Sullivan. Yes, yes, yes. And Leon Sullivan on... Uh, in Philadelphia on Broad Street, decided that he was going to put an institution and organization together, use his progress, his church, as the basis for constructing uh, Progress Plaza and the organization uh, called OIC, which was going to train our youth. And so that community in Philadelphia was an inspiration to uh, Ken Travin and myself and others in Newark in the 60s, because after we had the Urban Rebellion in Newark in 67, and Newark was in flames, and a lot of the community was destroyed, our thing wasn't burn, baby, burn. It may have been before, but once these explosions took place, our thing was build, baby, build. So we went to Philadelphia to look for a model of the community building for itself. And that Progress Plaza became a model for us, so we developed the Greater North Development Corporation and the Greater North Foods Corporation to create a, a shopping center with the food, uh, center, uh, uh, food shopping as the centerpiece, and the Greater North Development Corporation would be getting involved in housing. I'm saying, you're talking about the 60s, young black folk coming just out of college or still in college, working with older black folk, talking about building in their community and having Philadelphia's uh, Broad Street Progress uh, community and that church that he used as a model uh, inspiring us. Again, those who tune in, you keep hearing these powerful words, enlightening words from Dr. Leonard Jeffries, and not just talking about what happened in Newark, but also relating it to Philly. One of the things I want to do, Dr. Jeffries, is uh, I know as a historian of American history and African-American history and African history and even world history, uh, you have a lot to say about, for example, some American figures, historical figures. Uh, Talk for a minute, if you will, a few minutes, if you will, uh, Dr. Jeffries, about your views on Thomas Edison and Louis Latimer, and also your views on Granville T. Woods and Alexander Graham Bell, because um, you're a scholar, you're a historian, and you know that throughout the school systems in America, they talk about Thomas Edison, but not too much about Louis Latimer. They talk about Alexander Graham Bell, but not too much about Granville T. Woods. So we don't hear about the type of people who come from your community and from your family and my community. Talk for me, if you will, about Granville T. Woods, Alexander Graham Bell, uh, Thomas Edison, and Louis Latimer. Well, I'll definitely talk about those brothers because they're all an inspiration, and it's the same phenomena. It's not them as individuals. It's them as the extended African family, and so they're perfect examples of that. But before that, I want to talk about my pablum, my baby Please. food when I grew Please. up, and my brother's baby food, and, and, and much of the baby food of the people I grew up with, that pablum, as I said, was not dictating spot. It included understanding our history like Booker T. Washington. What did he do? He was an institution builder. What did he do? He came up out of slavery. He threw that aside and began to build for his people. He said, put your buckets down where you are and learn how to build your own homes, raise your own food, invent your own inventions. So Booker T. was part of the problem. And then Booker T. had a counterpart who grew up later. He didn't come out of slavery. He came out of the free community of the North, and that was 
uh, W.E.V. Du Bois. He was born mm. in 1868, the same time my father's father was born. And Georgia, he was born in Massachusetts. Well, W.E.V. Du Bois became part of the pablum of my uh, 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 early childhood because somehow or other he was doing a study of the migration of black people out of the South, Virginia in particular, into a city called Philadelphia. Okay, okay. And eventually he wrote in 1903 the Philadelphia Negro. Mm. But before he did that, he studied the migration patterns, and one of the bases he used was Farmville, Virginia, which is where my mother's people are from. So while he was studying the families in Farmville, Virginia, and their migration patterns and their skill development into Philadelphia and the adjustment from a small rural town into a larger developing city, while he did that, he met my mother's aunt, great aunt Pocahontas, because we came out of the Powhatan Indian. Okay. And Pocahontas became one of the secretaries of W.E.B. Du Bois. So W.E.B. Du Bois, along with Booker T., was part of my pablum. And then my grandfather, my grandfather was a Garveyite. He was a Booker T. Washingtonite, a a uh, W.E.B. Du Boisite, and a Garveyite. So that was my pablum: Booker T., <laughs> W.E.B., and Marcus Garvey. And so. This whole question of the Civil War and the struggle around the Civil War, I knew black troops fought in the Civil War because I had the books. I brought them to uh, Kenley High School in North New Jersey, and the teacher told me, you got to be crazy. Black people didn't fight in the Civil War. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. This was in the 1950s, 51 uh, or so, and the woman was saying, when I brought her the books, this was communist propaganda. Now, the, the person I was citing in his great works was W.E.B. Du Bois. So this was a real challenge because this was the McCarthy period when they were trying to make black people who were struggling out to be communists. But I stood my ground. I said, here the troops, here the pictures, here the thousands of black folks that fought. So I had to challenge the teacher early on. In that struggle in the Civil War was a black man called Latimer. He had fought out of slavery in the 1850s, made his way to freedom in New England. And then when the Civil War came, Lattimore's sons were willing to go back down south, joining the Union Army to fight for freedom. So Louis Lattimore was the youngest one. He tried to get into the Union Army, the Massachusetts 54th, but he could not uh, because of his age. So his older brothers got into the Union Army, and they were in the Massachusetts 54th that marched on Fort Wagner as the, um, uh, an example of the ability of black men to take up arms and defend themselves. Lewis, before he became the famous inventor, at 15 he falsified his age and went into the Union Army. So the three Lattimore brothers whose father fought out of slavery were fighting to free other black people in the Civil War. Then after the Civil War was over, he became a giant in terms of working with the uh, great white American giants. He worked as a partner of Edison, and in fact, Edison had a group of Edison pioneers and whatnot. He was one of the Edison pioneers, but he also worked with Maxim, and he also worked with um, uh, one of the other greats. They were trying to get him. He was so good. There was a vying of bringing this brother on their team, but Edison prevailed. He designed the carbon filament 
that goes into the light bulb that made Edison's light bulb a real invention because before it would go out. You can't have a light that goes out, but once exactly. Louis Latimer developed the carbon filament, it made Edison's light bulb work. He designed the plans for the lighting of New York, the lighting of London, the lighting of Montreal. This black man. And he was a part of the Edison team. And we used to drive our bikes up the uh, mountains, South Orange Mountains, and we would go to the Edison uh, laboratories and whatnot. We didn't know that one of those men sitting in the picture around Edison was this black man who was not only an inventor, but he was a poet, he was a writer, <laughs> etc. He came out of a struggle. His foundation was going back into slavery and helping black folks uh, defeat uh, uh, slavery. And so the Latimer brothers... That's why I say you mentioned Louis Latimer. I'm saying the Latimer brothers. And the Latimer brothers come out of a father who fought his way out of slavery and then made his way to New England. And then the slave catchers try to catch him and take him back into slavery. But he had become such a substantial part of the town in New England that the people raised money for him to remain free. So it wasn't just a Latimer individual, it was a Latimer brothers. It wasn't just a Latimer brothers, it was a Latimer brother and father. And a father can't do everything by himself, so it had to be a Latimer mother and father Amen. brothers. Amen. And so the same thing with Granville Woods. We see Granville T. Woods, but he was just like um, our brother uh, uh, Latimer. He was desired. Maxim wanted him. Other uh, Edison wanted him to be a part of his team. But this brother was so independent. He said, I don't want to be a part of any of these new white entrepreneurs. Me and my brother are going to form the Woods Brothers Electrical Company. And so it's Granville T. Woods and his brother. Yes. And they okay. were considered the black, he was considered the black Edison. What's and the he timeline? Was so, he was what, so what good. Date, what, dates, what dates are we talking about? What's the timeline? We're talking about 1880s. 1870s, 1880s, at a time when white America, black people had come out of slavery, 1865, and they moved so fast because of this desire for education, this desire for training, this desire for skills, this desire for freedom. Between 1865 and 1875, black people coming up out of a slavery that said you weren't even human, they moved so fast on the world stage that it shook white America, north and south. And they decided after the election of 1876, the Hayes-Tilden election, that they're going to put black folk back into semi-slavery. North and South said this freedom movement is just too much. Nowhere in history do you find a 10-year period which an enslaved population moved on the world stage free and then took its destiny in its hand. My grandfather, my father's father, was born in 1868. In 1877, he was barely years old, and the Ku Klux Klan and whatnot had been a part of the rising up of white supremacy to put black folks back. So I said to myself, how did my grandfather, born in 1868, when we were supposed to get the 13th Amendment to free us and end slavery, the 14th Amendment give us a citizen's right, the 15th Amendment in 1870 to give us the right to vote, my grandfather never got those things. White folks never honored that. But still, he came on the world stage crippled with a slavery background, but he stepped full bold uh, to take his manhood. 
But he didn't do it by himself. He had an older brother, Sam, who was born in 1865 in slavery. And then he had his other sisters and brothers. So how did they, in one generation, come out of the, the dehumanization of slavery and stand tall? And by the 1880s and 90s, they had marriage, land, they had institutions. The schoolhouse that they built is still standing on our land in Georgia, a three-room schoolhouse. The churches that they built are there. The ruins of the Masonic order that he was the head of the Masonic order. How could he in one generation with white folks moving against them do what he did with all the others that he did it with? We have to look at that story. That's one of the greatest stories not told. We didn't get a helping hand from white folks. Very few white folks wanted to help us. Rich white folks got scared because we were moving too fast. Poor mm -hmm. white folks were jealous because we were moving too fast. So they formed the Klan to put us back into slavery. My grandfather was born in 1868. He became a leader of his community. He was a, he was one of, of many uh, children. His brother He had 13 kids, His brother, including my father, who was the last child. His brother Sam had 15. They had their farms together. You can see them on the census maps, uh, these brothers together. The churches that they built are still there in Georgia. He was the head of the Masonic uh, 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 temple that was there, the Daughters of Ruth. Out of this rural clay of Georgia, they built institutions for survival in their community. They took their cotton to the uh, general store as white folks took their cotton, and they sold their cotton on the co cotton train that had come to take that cotton to Savannah and then up to the north uh, for milling. So in one generation, he had moved into greatness for me. I didn't know that, but it was in his children that helped to raise me, my aunt's. And, and uncles, he was killed in 18, in 1917, July the 14th, by the new clan that rose after the Birth of the Nation movie in 1915. And so he was barely 50, but he had achieved. And then my father barely knew him because he was three. My father was born in 1914, so he was three years old when his father was killed. But that didn't... Uh, didn't make any difference. The strength that the father put in his children was passed on to my father through his uncles and his auntie. Dr. You have to Jeffrey, see generations of the transfer of power and manhood and womanhood as part of our story. Let me say this, Dr. Jeffries. We're going to have to get with Leslie Gist of the On the Gist of Freedom with this Block Talk radio show and have you on two or three more times because 60 minutes is not enough. We only have about six minutes left, and I went through to wrap things up by responding to a couple quick things. Um, uh, yes. You talked about what the community has done and what the family has done for the likes of you and your family and friends. You talked about uh, Louis Latimer. Um, my question to you is, has anything been done lately in terms of black contribution? For example, in Silicon Valley, for those who say that, well, yeah, black folks might have did something in the late 1800s, but what have we done since? What's your response quickly to our contribution to Silicon Valley? Our contribution to the rising technology of the Western world is very real. Uh, there, Silicon Valley was where I developed one of the first black studies programs in, in, uh, in the United States. Wow. San Jose is the heart of Silicon Valley. 1969, I went to set up the Black Studies Department in San Jose. I was asked to come out. I was teaching at City College, the first black course uh, uh, in the political science department of City College in, in 19, 
69, and that's when Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Ture, at later had passed through, Rap Brown had passed through, King had been assassinated, assassinated April 68, and they were inspiring black uh, young men and women to take control of their destiny. So the students in my class in, the, uh, in February of 1969, uh, they began to demand that the college open up and service black students. They demanded that they put in a remedial courses to help those black students crippled by bad school. They demanded that they put in uh, black seniors and, and faculty and advisors. They demanded that they have black studies. The demand in City College took place in the spring of 69, and the students took over to back up the demands. In May 69, I was asked to come to a conference in San Jose and then uh, to deal with Malcolm X's uh, uh, legacy. And at that point, they were looking for a leader of their program. James Turner uh, did not go. He went to Cornell. I took the program in San Jose. And so we developed the largest, one of the largest programs on the West Coast in San Jose. For three, and in the middle of Silicon Valley, we hooked up with black inventors in Silicon Valley. The, the curriculum included uh, uh, technological development in the black community. We got blacks from Lockheed and other industrialization uh, uh, enterprises in the Bay Area to teach in our program. So we, we don't know our history, and the white folks don't want us to know our history. We don't want to know that the cell phone, several of the first patents around the cell phone were by black folks. Okay. We don't want to know that uh, other key uh, uh, methodologies, when we, hear, when we think of open-heart surgery, first yes. black people that do open-heart surgery were our folks. Uh, and so... Our contribution all along the spectrum, literature, uh, uh, philosophy, uh, science and technology, uh, has to be understood to understand how we, against the odds, have established a foundation that our people now don't have a clue about, and they're rapping about this and they're rapping about that. They're raising up 50 Cent instead of looking at uh, Louis Lattimore and uh, Malcolm X, El Haj Malik, El Shabazz, Martin King, and our great sisters who have continue this struggle. And so my role has been to put in place the educational programs, hooking up with people around the world to do the same. And so we're still doing it. We're still doing it with a passion. The young people around us are doing that. Now, that's the story I'll be talking about later, how this has been passed down for generation after generation, and it's not seen because they don't want you to see black folks struggling. But I travel around the world. This came back from Amsterdam a couple of weeks ago, where the black people in Serenan are doing it in Amsterdam. And before that, I was in Birmingham, not Birmingham, Alabama, Birmingham, England, where the black okay. people in England who brought me year after year back are doing it in Birmingham, England. So, yes, there'll be a continuation. I hope so. I have to give it to the sister for kind of imposed upon me in my busy time. She said, no, yes. Doctor, we need you. <laughs> I you said, know, let, let me jump on that because we are going to try to impose upon you for an extra 15 minutes if we can. We thought we'd have you on from 8 to 9, but due to this demand, we're constantly getting calls and emails and Facebook notices saying, hey, can you keep Dr. Jeffries on until 9.15? So can we impose for an extra 15 minutes? <laughs> well, definitely, definitely. Let me just tie this together. Now, yeah. I went to Roosevelt Avenue School, a school built in, in 1870-something. Then I went on to Sussex School, a school built in 1880-something. These old schools, we learned along with the white kids. And we learned because our parents made us learn in the homes as well as in the churches. 
Well, every Saturday, uh, Sunday we would go to church down the street. Oh, oh, Bobby and Ronnie. Oh, this uh, Sammy Foster. This, uh, these black youngsters would go down to the Sunday school at the uh, end of the uh, near 14th Street, uh, uh, near Fourth uh, Street. Sorry, near 14th Street and Orange Street was our little church, Mount Sinai. But in that church, there were black people putting their hands on us, trying not just teaching some Bible lessons, but teaching us manhood and womanhood, how to respect each other, how to work together, how to read and write, and how to excel. So even the church was not just a place where we went to pray or yell and shout. We we went to learn how to be whole, how to help each other. And so I went on to McKinley High School and then on to Barringer High School. But while I got into Barringer High School, there people from the other villages of Newark were, including someone called Leroy Jones, who eventually becomes Amiri Baraka. Yes, and when you sir. see Amiri, it's not just a great mind, a great spirit, but he comes out of a great family. And it's his father and mother that inspired him. His father and mother were part of Bethany Baptist Church. That's where his branches of my family were at Bethany Baptist Church. When I saw him standing over his father's uh, coffin at Bethany, speaking about growing up in Newark, how his father worked with him and worked with the others in the community, how his father took him to the ball game, how his father helped develop him into his manhood. I was in tears of joy because that's the experience I felt in the same Newark, New Jersey. But he was in another section of Newark, New Jersey. In that same high school, which was largely Italian-American, were two brothers, the Payne brothers, Donald Payne and Bill Payne, his elder brothers, in that same high school. So it wasn't just an individual thing. Here were two brothers who were doing it. One becomes a congressman. One becomes a state legislator. One, the oldest one, uh, a bill sponsored the Amstead legislation to put the black history in the curriculum. But in that school were other brothers. There was the Sesame Peoples brother, Arnold and Seth Peoples. Uh, Seth's uh, Arnold has passed on to ancestor realm. Seth was a great educator in Newark. Not only a great basketball player, Arnold a great football player, but they also got involved in passing the legacy on. For those who just tuned in, we have on the line Dr. Leonard Jeffries. And as you can hear, he's a scholar, he's an activist. He's talking about how the family comes together, how the community comes together. We want to thank Leslie Gistov on the Gist of Freedom Blog Talk Radio for bringing us all together to talk about this. What can we do today, 2011, 2012, to bring back that family consciousness and that community consciousness where we pull our pants up and open up a book? What can we do today? Seeing our people who weren't even our blood as family. We call them aunties and uncles. They weren't a part of our bloodline, but they were part of our community family. So we have to restore the family. Individual respect is necessary for self, but if you don't see self as an extended self, it's not going to go anywhere. Our unfortunate individualistic culture that hip-hop has, hip-hop didn't come out of that. Hip-hop came out of groups of brothers getting together, coming up with a little message, and, and coming Amen. up with a formation yes. to, to tell people what they're And then it was hijacked. It became ga gangster rap and all kinds of other things. And so that individualism, you out there holding on to your genitals, put your hands in the air, do what I do. And I said, well, who the hell is that that got thousands of people, white, black, Asians, Latino, putting their hands up in the air and come to find, his, find out his name was ludicrous? Well, God, dog, ludicrous? That's the name? and he got people swaying back and forth and, and not about anything serious. We, we had a sense of mission.
vision and purpose and direction to do something. That has to happen in the home. But if the home is so busy, you're trying to work hard to get your little Cadillac and get this and that, the mother and fathers are there, and then the grandparents are not there to, to make up for the mother and fathers not being there, we, we got dispersed in this individualism of white folks in, integrating in their communities, moving away from your center and not going back and, and keeping that, that relationship going. So the family connectedness fell apart. Individualism became uh, our, our byword. I'm going to do my thing. I don't give a damn about it. My mother told me that my little brother was my responsibility. I knew early on when, when I was born, uh, born in 1937, and here in 38 October comes this other little beautiful young. So I thought I was the center of the world, and then here comes this beautiful younger. I'm dark and, of course, good-looking. Uh, he is uh, 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 highly light. And, and, and good looking. So how was I going to compete with this little boy? So we were in the same bedroom. I knew I had to share space and place with him. But my mother said, no matter what you think you are as a superstar, the firstborn, your responsibility is to take care of him. And so that type of tradition that you've got to share and and, and take care of things, that, that's what we've lost. We, we got, we bought on this white individualist thing, I'm going to do my thing. Uh, 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 I ain't going to worry about no family. I ain't going to worry about no giving back. We were raised with the understanding that you sacrifice. You sacrifice to get somewhere. That's the first S. And that sacrifice to get somewhere, meaning you put in place uh, uh, ability to do something, and so that meant you had to serve, that you weren't just serving yourself, you were serving your people. And that sacrifice to be somebody and that serving your people allowed you to think of success. My success is not an individual success. Yes, I've worked with some of the greatest people in the world. Dick Gregory is a friend of mine. I was with Alex Haley for seven years. Yes, I went after Lafayette College to Europe to study in Europe and not to study in, in English. I studied in French. Je parle très bien en français, presque comme le français. On the same as the two, the doctor, et fait de langue française. This poor boy from Newark, New Jersey, graduated from Lafayette College, went to Europe and kicked butt. And so... <laughs> It's not just a me, it's a we. Uh, we were trained, it's not just an ego, it's a we go. And so that has been built into our understanding of things. We've got to find formulas to get it, get that back. Now, I'll be going to Senegal in a couple of uh, weeks for the World Summit of Mayors. I was in Senegal in uh, April, I was in Senegal in June, I was in Senegal in uh, a year from April, uh, before April, I was with the leadership of Black America, with Julian Bond and, and Jesse Jackson and all, all of the mayors, et cetera. So there is this connectedness going on among us to do something for Africa and to do something for our own community. So it's not a lost ball game. The larger system has been attacking us. We're losing jobs. We're losing our houses. We're losing our institution. But we still have the ability to rise. And the symbol of that rise is in Senegal. Senegal is the closest point to the Americas. Senegal has Gore, the famous slave island, uh, where many of our ancestors transited before they came uh, to uh, the Americas. But in Senegal now, it's not just the history of slavery, it is the projection of the future. There is a statue in Senegal put on a volcanic hill. That statue is the rise of the black family. The centerpiece is the black man rising, holding on to his rock in his right hand, his wife, and in his left hand, he's holding up his child. And the child is pointing not north to Europe, where we usually look for sustenance and guidance, not 
east to Asia, where the new boys on the block, Indian and China, are emerging, not east to Mecca, not south to Africa. That child is pointing west to the Western Hemisphere. It is the Africans in the Western Hemisphere, Canada, the United States, Central America, the islands of the Caribbean, northern South America, Guyana and, and Suriname, and Brazil. It is that African awake and aware and linking to the African continent will be the future of our people. That statue was conceived of seven years ago. It was built over a period of time. It was designed by the Senegalese, but it was built by the North Koreans because nobody built monuments. Nobody builds monumentally like that again. That statue is taller than the Statue of Liberty in the harbor of these United States in the New York Harbor, which is a symbol of the struggle of the black folk in the Civil War. The Statue of Liberty has not a damn thing to do with immigrants coming over from Europe. It was conceived by a Frenchman, Edward René Lefleur de la Boulay, who was the head of the French Anti-Slave Society in 1865. One of the greatest moments in history was when slavery was ended with black folks, a half a million of them, participating in the Civil War freeing themselves. And so then the Frenchman said, now we can honor America, now that uh, slavery is ended. So the Statue of Liberty in the harbor is ours, but it's been hijacked. And so white folks think it's theirs and it has nothing to do with us, but the chains at the foot of the Statue of Liberty reflect the chains of enslavement. But in spite of that American symbol, this African symbol is the new way the rise of the black family. It is taller than the Statue of Liberty. It is taller than Jesus, the Redeemer, that overlooks the, the bay in Rio de Janeiro. It is the tallest statue of its kind. You can go inside the base, and there's museums, there's exhibits, there's assembly rooms, there's meeting rooms, there's theater. You can take an elevator from inside the base and go up 15 stories through the thighs, the powerful thighs of the black man, through his uh, uh, strong backbone and spinal column, through his broad shoulders, up through his neck, into his mind, you can, into his head. You can look out the head. 25 to 30 people can be inside the head of the black man looking out on the world. I've never conceived of anything that represented who and what we are and what we should be in my life. But it's there in Senegal. It's been built. I've been there several times. I'm going there in a couple of weeks. Someone has created a symbol. Why is the symbol important? Because whoever controls the symbols controls a good deal of the thinking. Whoever controls the knowledge controls the thinking. Whoever controls the images controls the self-esteem, what you think about yourself, the self-respect, who and what you think you are and how you respect others, and your self-development. We are in trouble since the late 70s and 80s and crack and other things. A miseducation began to dominate our world. We are in trouble because somebody else has controlled our images. So we have a low self-esteem. We have little respect for what is important. And we don't have self-development. We have arrested development. And so we have to break that. This is all wonderful, isn't it? To know that God has provided for us and has made ways for us and that God is excited about us prospering and being in health even as our soul prospers. But I don't want us to lose our ultimate goal because none of this means anything if we miss heaven. 
God's not impressed with your American Express or your gold card. God's looking for those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Believed on His name. I want you to just sort of imagine with me, if you will. Just imagine, you know, you can close your eyes if you want. You can imagine being in heaven. And you're standing there before God. And you get this private audience with them. And it's just, out of all the millions of folks that are in heaven, you're talking to them by yourself. Just imagine with me. If I can just make it up there, if I can walk through that city bright. Tell the Lord, talk to the Lord on that day. 
Yes, I want to. What about you? 